Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Donnie Darko. This one is going to get complex. Prepare yourself for a head-spinning spaghetti explosion of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey type discussion. If you haven't yet seen Donnie Darko, definitely see it before listening. We're going to try our very best to simplify things, cut through the bullshit, and hopefully make some sense of the abiding explanations, as well as talking at length about the strengths and weaknesses of this genuinely extraordinary film. I've read a lot in the past few days from people who adore it, people who hate it, people afraid to admit that they don't fully get it, and people who misinterpret proceedings wildly. And that's fine. Their misinterpretation may merely be my interpretation of their misinterpretation. It all gets crowned up its own ass eventually. Mm-hmm. What I will say is that it's really inadvisable to watch Richard Kelly's director's cut. For reasons we're going to go into, it's a lot less elegant, less beautiful, less assured, and it seems to be trying really hard to explain its principles and in cheap, blunt, crass, and on-the-nose ways which it fails to eventually do. It doesn't explain its principles. In fact, watching this around Christmas time 2004 actually put me off Donnie Darko for years. And that was after I really, really loved it for several years. Purely based on the reeling realisation that this was the director's true vision. In retrospect, it feels like a response to hundreds of people asking him, Richard Kelly, questions he got sick of answering. So he spliced together a PowerPoint presentation into the film, hoping to educate everyone. It's his prequels. It's his special edition. Okay. It re- like the special editions are, are what it feels like, in just in terms of how much he slapped onto the screen that wasn't there before, and then tried to cover it up with, "Oh no, this is what I intended it." to This be was my wrong. original vision. Really. One of the most glaring flaws is that neither cut manages to fully explain its goings-on. People who have done extra reading claim that they fully understand it, but even with that further reading, there are glaring contradictions and unanswered questions that aren't like fun mysteries or, or read into this what you will, but vital components in the understanding of the mechanics of this story. 
For a start, as an audience member, you shouldn't need to do any of that extra reading. Any more than you shouldn't have to play Enter the Matrix on PlayStation 2 to really get the Matrix reloaded. We Hate Movies said that before, and like, totally on the ball on that one. You're absolutely right. If you want to engage with extra media, that's fine, but it should be an enhancement, not an essential. If anyone ever tells you when you say, who the fuck is this kid? Oh, you didn't see the Animatrix? Because they have the whole kid's story there. They don't have the whole kid's story there. It's like a seven-minute bit, and you learn very little about him and the two don't feel connected anyway that is not how a movie works you shouldn't have to do homework after seeing a movie just to understand it you shouldn't have to do a test and if you do do the reading you'd better damn well understand at the end and I don't and it's been 16 years now And we're going to do that reading for you now with discussion and clarification. And we shall see if during the course of this podcast we hash it out and make some sense of it. Or if we don't and we all kind of agree that it doesn't really make sense. And that's fine. Because that's the thing. If you basically left this movie with a kind of it doesn't make sense but that's fine vibe. Then you can just marvel at the better aspects of it. But it's when you start really trying to think about what went on that things get murky. So let's do that now. Let's get murky first. And then we'll get lurky afterwards. So this is the official movie explanation that's on www.donnydarko.org.uk. You're you're facepalming already. I'll stop you there. Yep. If your movie requires its own website to explain it... You're compounding my point from above. You done fucked up. Firstly, this explanation is written assuming that you've seen the film. There are spoilers throughout, so uh, it could ruin the enjoyable experience of watching it for the first time. The film has been carefully made so that there are multiple explanations to what happens with the release of the director's cut. Some of the ambiguity has been taken away and the director's true vision of the story becomes clearer. The explanation heavily revolves around the book Donnie gets from his teacher, The Philosophy of Time Travel, written by Roberta Sparrow, Grandma Death. The book is fictional in the film, but some of the pages were in the film's website and included in the director's cut version of the movie. PU means primary universe, TU means tangent universe, and... P-O-T-T is philosophy of time travel. Tangent universe. The philosophy of time travel states that time is usually a stable construct, but every now and then the fourth dimension gets corrupted. Fourth dimension is time, folks. When this happens, it creates a tangent universe, which is highly unstable and will only last a few weeks before it collapses in upon itself. There is a danger that when the tangent universe collapses, it will cause a black hole capable of destroying the primary universe as well. As far as I can tell... The universe, the primary timeline universe weakens at around about the time Donnie goes to bed that night, slightly before Frank turns up, for no given reason. We are not actually told why and how the primary universe weakened and tangented off. 
This is what happens in the movie. There's a corruption in time, and at midnight on October 2nd, the Tangent Universe is created. The next 28 days are now set in this alternate reality. Shortly after this alternate reality, shortly after the Tangent Universe starts, Frank wakes Donnie up and lures him out of the house. A few minutes later, a huge jet engine falls through the rip in time and lands on Donnie's bedroom. It is important to remember that the TU is not created by the jet engine or Frank waking up Donnie. So basically, Frank waking up Donnie did not create the Tangent Universe. It was already a tangent. The jet engine falling through did not create the Tangent Universe. It was already a tangent. Apparently, it, like the weakened bit created a rift above the house. The artifact. According to the philosophy of time travel, when the Tangent Universe is created, an artifact will also spontaneously appear. The artifact is the first sign of evidence that the Tangent Universe has been created, and they are always made from metal. In this case, the artifact is a giant jet engine. Where the artifact originally comes from is never disclosed. It is most likely created as the Tangent Universe was being formed. The Tangent Universe is an exact copy of the Prime Universe with one of everything copied into it. During the copying process, there was a glitch and two jet engines were formed. The second engine has nowhere to go as it already exists, so it's just dumped where the Tangent Universe began over Donnie's house. The artifact makes the Tangent Universe unstable. It can't handle having the anomaly of a duplicate object within it. So it's like time cop rules when um, Ron Silver gets thrown into himself. In order for the Tangent Universe to unravel without format forming a black hole, it must once again be an exact copy of the primary universe. By removing one of the duplicate jet engines, it will balance out the universe, allowing the Tangent Universe to collapse safely. The only way to remove the artifact is to send it through a portal into the primary universe. So what happens at the end is another engine, or the, the original one that was copied, gets thrown through the rift and into the primary universe. The living receiver. When a tangent universe occurs with an artifact, then a living receiver is also chosen chosen he is chosen this person is chosen seemingly at random and in this case donnie is the chosen one as donnie was at the epicenter of the tangent universe this is more likely why he was selected the living receiver's mission is to guide the artifact out of the tu this person is usually blessed with some supernatural powers during their time in the tu to help them with their quest some of these include increased strength mind control the ability to conjure fire and water and telekinesis right he doesn't have mind control. Everybody who acts around him is the manipulated living. So he's not controlling their minds. Why add mind control to this fucking list? Who's doing the manipulating? Is he doing the manipulating no. or is it just happening? The manipulating is happening. It hasn't, I haven't got to this bit yet. By fifth dimensional beings. Yep, she's closing her eyes. Fifth dimensional beings that exist outside of the fourth dimension of time... Now, I always thought when I was reading this original um, uh, explanation that they were in the far-flung future. So, like, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, Bogus Journey. Like, they're in the future going, oh, shit, something bad's happening in the past. It's created a tangent universe. we got to manipulate someone back in the past and fix it. But from the sounds of it, these would be beings very similar to those that turn up in certain recent high-profile sci-fis that deal with beings that exist outside of time. Or in the space between spaces. Beings that exist outside of first, second, third, and indeed fourth dimensional space who may as well be God. Yeah? Mm -hmm. They're manipulating Donnie 
and they're manipulating Frank, and they're manipulating everyone in Middlesex. Puppeteering them, if you will, to ensure that this tangent universe is successfully disposed of. And they do this with what appears to be sort of like late 90s computer technology, if you're going to be looking at the, uh, like the, the screens that get thrown up in the director's cut. Like at one point, it looks like Games Master. <laughs> throwing all those grids up and things. And... Now, sir, give me the Cyber Razor Cut. The Cyber Razor Cut. Yeah! <laughs> so, uh, increased strength, mind control, the ability to conjure fire and water and telekinesis. He uses his strength to bury the axe into the school water pipe and solid bronze mascot. Uh, he uses his fire to burn Jim Cunningham's house down. He also uses gasoline and matches. Not really so much of a power. He floods the school and he's constructs... he's done that before. He floods the school and constructs a time portal from water. Does he construct a time portal from water? Would we hear that say that? When does that happen? Um, well, he dreams about the school and he hmm. sort of dreams about a portal. He floods the school, but the portal turns up yeah. much later. He floods the school by hitting a water pipe with an axe. That's not water powers, that's having an axe. <laughs> if, if he's got water powers, then Jack Nicholson in The Shining has door powers. He uses telekinesis to rip the jet engine off the plane and send it through the time portal. Oh. We never see this happen. It never happens on screen. We never have any evidence of him doing that. But it says so here, so it must have actually happened. That would be Donnie's active behaviour at the end of the film. That would be the stuff we don't see where Donnie's actually doing something. We don't see it, but we're told it happens. Donnie is not aware of his responsibilities at first, though he doesn't even know he is within a tra- tangent universe. As his journey continues, he slowly starts to realise what's going on and what he must do. Manipulated dead. Anyone connected with a living receiver who dies in the tangent universe becomes manipulated dead. These people are very powerful and have the ability to move through time and talk to the living receiver through a fourth dimensional construct. In other words, when Frank's inside that wibbly-wobbly, glowy-wowy thing and he like holds his hand up against it and it's all woo-wavy, that's a fourth-dimensional time construct. Okay. So okay. this is Frank being manipulated dead. Yes, it's a big old square bubble. Okay. So when Johnny, Donnie's stabbing it with a knife, he's like, I've just got to get through this time. But he can't because it's time. They also have some knowledge of the impending disaster and help guide the chosen one. I just hand. saw the phrase reverse ghost. Frank and is it made me think of reverse vampires. Frank is killed in the tangent universe and therefore becomes one of the manipulated dead. He travels back in time and helps Donnie with his quest to return the artifact. The first thing he must do is save Donnie by waking him up before he gets squashed by the jet engine. <clears throat> He's like a reverse ghost who appears before he was killed. Gretchen is also manipulated dead, but she doesn't appear to Donnie in the same way as it might be too confusing for him. But, you know, despite what I'm actually saying here, I'm angry that this film doesn't make sense because I want it to, because I really love so much about this film. I've got a top ten list of things that I love about this film, and it's most of the film. I've got a bottom five list of things that I really don't like about the film. And it's, it's most of this website. It's Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, you've you've hit the nail on the head. It's the overthinking of it because you have to overthink it because it requires you to overthink it. And then over after overthinking it, you feel like what a bunch of wasted energy because there is no right answer because it doesn't make sense. 
Nearly every event in the film has a specific purpose designed to aid Donnie to save the universe. There is a driving force behind the manipulator's behaviour, though we never find out what it is for sure. God is one of the most popular ideas mooted. The film does use religion at many points. The story uses a lot of religious symbols and often points to the idea that you follow God's channel to decide your own fate. This guiding force is moving all the manipulated characters around like pieces on a chessboard, making a sequence of events that will lead to Donnie's successes. The universe is in grave danger, and this guiding force has stepped in to help save it. The insurance trap, that's the old English for it, insurance. The philosophy of time travel states that all of the manipulators are trying to lure the living receiver into a trap, so he has no choice but to send the artifact out of the tangent universe into the primary universe. The... Philosophy of time travel calls this the insurance trap, Old English. This is effectively the role all the manipulated play, and they are trying to save themselves by guiding Donnie to complete his mission. If Donnie fails, they all die as well. Frank tells Donnie to flood the school, which in turn leads to Donnie walking Gretchen home and uh, him then asking her to be his girlfriend. This event is not just coincidence, it's specifically put in place as part of the trap. Gretchen plays a crucial role in the trap. Remember, Donnie only meets and falls in love with her within the Tangent Universe. He is given someone to love, then she dies. He is so upset that Frank... So, like, you have to now imagine a bunch of, um, Cabin in the Woods guys. I'm literally imagining those guys being the fifth dimensional beings, going, right, ah, we got to make him fall in love with someone. I mean, he loves all of his family, so he could just use them, but fuck it, this new girl at school, we can use her, right? She's got a tragic past. Well, match them up. It's like fucking manipulated reality TV. And they're doing this on the fly because they can observe time from all angles so they know exactly how things would have gone. Which, interestingly, calls into question the very nature of fate. Seemingly everything is predetermined until an anomaly like this occurs. Gretchen plays a crucial role in The Trap. Remember, Donnie only meets and falls in love with her within the Tangent Universe. He is given someone to love, then she dies. He's so upset at Frank for killing Gretchen that he shoots him dead. This is now created manipulated dead Frank, the person guiding him to do these things. He must create manipulated dead Frank in order to save himself in the beginning. But it was me. Hey, it was me who stole my dad's keys. The manipulated have now successfully set the trap. But they always did. Donnie was saved from death and is now in a desperate situation. His girlfriend is dead and he's a killer on the run. He knows that his purpose is now, what his purpose is now and only has one way out, even though it will ultimately end his own life. Though he doesn't necessarily need to. Sending the engine through a portal will erase the last 28 days from history and time will return to October 2nd, back to when Gretchen was still alive. Though I'm going to query the official line on this. No, it won't. The Tangent Universe is collapsing anyway. Removing the artifact merely ensures that the primary universe is safe. Donnie's manipulators are convincing him that Gretchen will live if he does this. But in reality, everyone will live if he does this. And that's the thing. The stakes throughout this film appear to only be Gretchen. And Frank, who would have to die for this. And Miss Pomeroy, who would lose her job. And all of the other terrible things that happen during this tangent universe, including, of course, the death of Rose and Samantha Darko, which Donnie doesn't know about. Not to mention every passenger on the plane around them. But they were doomed anyway because this tangent universe is collapsing. Everyone was going to cease to exist. No one ever says the whole universe will collapse. These stakes were added in post. Like post-film release. 
At the end of the film, we see a vortex appear over Donnie's house. It's the beginning of the Tangent Universe collapse, and it's centred over where it began. Donnie is aware of what he must do now, so he drives up the mountain for a better vantage point. The plane with the same jet engine has been manipulated to fly overhead at this exact time. Donnie rips the engine off using his telekinesis in shots we never see. All it would take would be Jake Gyllenhaal holding up his hand in some like some X-Men way that indicates he's doing something. I, I, I get that you're trying to be open to interpretation, but there's almost no interpretation you can make of this. Donnie rips the engine off using telekinesis, constructs a time portal from water, and guides the engine through it. We now see parts of the last 28 days rewinding as the Tangent Universe starts to unravel. The Tangent Universe has collapsed safely and the primary universe that was on pause starts back up from where it stopped. We are now back in reality on October 2nd. The last 28 days never happened. Donnie wakes up in his bed laughing after dreaming some of the events within the TU. Some of the events. Not all of the events, just some of them, he says. Uh, and not none of them either. He then goes back to sleep seemingly content with life now. The experience has seemingly brought him closer to God and he is no longer afraid to die. The jet engine Donnie sent through the time portal now falls into his bedroom, killing him. Dreams. Even though the last 28 days never actually happened, some of the manipulated will be haunted in their dreams by their experiences within the Tangent Universe. There are bits of evidence to prove this. Frank touching his eye in the final montage and Gretchen waving to Donnie's mum proves that... So this person writing this was British... There's a big British following for this film. In fact, I believe it came out... Um, oh, no, it came out in America and like was completely buried because this film <clears throat> was released at the beginning of October in 2001. And it absolutely must include an aeroplane going down. Do you see how the odds were always stacked against this film? Like, this could never be big. The people wanted Spider-Man. They did not want Donnie Darko. We see Jim Cunningham crying in the montage as he wakes up clearly disgusted with himself. Ten days later, he clears out his child pornography dungeon and shoots himself on the 14th hole of the golf course. His dirty secret is never revealed. Final remarks. Many people assume Donnie has to die, otherwise the TU would start over again. From a scientific point of view, Donnie's death is not relevant at all. The corruption is already fixed before he dies, and if he got up and avoided death, then nothing would change. The philosophy of time travel, which by the way is a book with 12 pages in it, tells us of previous receivers who died after the artifact was returned, but we only hear about them because their death defies logic. It's almost certain Roberta Sparrow was a living receiver in a previous tangent universe so the old lady grandma death was in donnie's shoes and in that would have been in the 1940s prior to her writing the philosophy of time travel when she understood what had happened to her and that is how she came to write the philosophy of time travel she survived her experience proving that a receiver doesn't always have to die the film does blend science and religion together so his death may emphasize him as a savior and his belief in god in death donnie's role as the living receiver seems even greater than before other common questions concerning the artifact Donnie sends through the portal at the end of the movie. Many people ask why the PU is not in danger now, as it has a duplicate object with it. It seems to be the case that the issue of duplicate objects is only a concern once the universe there within starts going through the collapsing process. The PU is a stable linear timeline that never goes through a collapsing process, so it is therefore never in any danger from duplicate objects. I'm just wondering why the urgency on moving the artifacts and assisting the tangent universe with its collapse because from the sounds of things it's going to collapse anyway. anyway everybody within it who's going to die 
is kind of the alternative is they never existed. So what's the difference to them? Okay, so if a tangent universe collapses with a duplicate object in it, it destroys all of time and space. If a tangent universe collapses without a, a, a duplicate object in it, it, it just collapses that one. Yeah. Uh, as stated above, the artifact is not the cause of the tangent universe, it's just a byproduct of it. This is why there is no danger of another tangent universe starting up once Donnie sends his artifact through the portal at the end of the unit movie. Unanswered questions. Even though the main explanation is con consistent and ties the whole movie together, and what I just said is not consistent. The, the thing that's galling is, I understood this in 2002. And I understand it so much less now. If the only thing that really has to happen is for the duplicate object to be moved from the tangent universe to the primary universe, and the fifth dimensional beings that are manipulating everything have to increase the non-human powers of a human in order to get that thing to be done, wouldn't it just be as easy for them to move said object themselves? Yes. Yes, it fucking would. Take it out of the tangent universe, close off the tangent universe and leave it to fritter out over the next 28 days, and then just shunt that one sideways so it appears in the street next to the Darko household, thus not killing anyone. End of fucking movie. What the fuck are you doing, you ridiculous theatrical bastards, you, you fifth-dimensional wankers? Oh, we're just going to manipulate the entire town to make this happen. Why? The fifth-dimensional being moves in mysterious ways. It's like, not up, for, up to us to question them. Yes, it fucking is. I could understand it if they are totally intangible and cannot have any impact on physical things, and everything that's done is a basic physical thing that a human could do, that Donnie could have done mm. just as himself. Don't do what Donnie, Donnie Darko do does. <laughs> Um, but that's not the case. They have to give him weird telekinesis powers that don't even require him to do anything to use them. And apparently mind control. When does he use Which that? Which he never uses. Never at any point. And fire powers, otherwise known as having a can of gasoline. <sighs> Unanswered questions. Millions. Even though the main explanation is consistent, apparently, and... Even though the main explanation that I have given is consistent and ties the whole movie together, there are still a few parts of the movie that are not explained and have to rely on theory. Here are some of these questions with possible explanations and some common mistakes people make. Pretentious wanker. What creates the tangent universe? Why exactly does a tangent universe occur? Are they natural phenomena, or are they artificially created? There is one theory that scientists in the future build a machine that somehow causes a rip in time in the past. Another theory is that it could have been caused by alien involvement. Quite a common thought is that Frank saving Donnie in the beginning of, of, is the cause of the TU. Donnie was meant to die, and by surviving, he altered things which caused the corruption. This is not true. It is not! By the way, if you've seen the director's cut, the bit at the end has this horrible, disgusting grid on the screen, which makes it seem like they're looking... Like I said before, they're looking at it through 90s computers, and they've just seen Requiem for a Dream, and, they, <laughs> and they're uh, you know, chucking loads of fireworks and crap at the screen over what was originally a really nice edited sequence of like personal family connections. That... That scene, actually, the, the way the sequence has been altered pretty much sums up what I feel about the difference between the original theatrical cut and the director's cut. Yeah, it's exemplary. 
the first jet engine. One major question is, where does the jet engine in the beginning of the movie come from originally? If it came from the future, where exactly and what day did it come from? A common answer to the question is, it's the same engine Donnie sends through the portal from the plane his mother and sister were on. The engine travels through time and lands on Donnie's house. It's exactly the same event as the end of, uh, as the, end of the film, only the first time around Donnie survives. This is extremely unlikely, though, as the portals are just a gate adjust a gateway between the two universes primary and tangent the first engine lands in the tangent universe so if it came through a portal it would have to come from the primary universe the engine Donnie rips of the plane at the end is from the tangent universe and travels through a portal into the primary universe so there is no way it can be from the, sa- the same event repeating yes Sharon if he... It is like a class, isn't it? I, uh, pe- people need to be putting their hands up. If he rips the engine off that plane... Yeah. With his telekinesis, we never see. Presumably... Right, okay. Presumably the point here is that the the engine which is in the FAA's warehouse somewhere mm-hmm. in a box marked do not open ever. Yeah. That's the duplicate. Yes. What Donnie does is remove the original so that at least there is only one of that in the tangent universe. If it did come from a future point in the primary timeline, once the corruption is fixed by Donnie, that future event won't happen now, so we will eventually... We will never find out exactly how it occurred. That whole, we will never find out exactly how it occurred, is one of those fucking terrible pieces of writing. At this point, I'm just imagining somebody quizzing Richard Richard Kelly Kelly at a convention about this, and him sat there with a joint going, I don't... Fucking no. That eventually leading to him creating the director's cut. And I need to go back in time to prevent him doing that. Yes, you do. Because this universe has a duplicate of Donnie Darko in it that it doesn't need. Nice. Uh, Southland Tales is another one that he's done, which everybody fucking hates. I quite liked it. Nowhere near as much as Donnie Darko, but it's got some good musical bits in it. And uh, Sean William Scott gives quite a good pair of dramatic performances. The rocks in it. It's effectively, if you want to break it down, the same story of duplication and tangent universes and the whole universe being in danger and someone insignificant being asked to do something selfless. Only it has a different conclusion. If you can get your head around Donnie Darko, you'll probably be able to get through Southland Tales, but you'll still be scratching it. Sarah Michelle Gellar sings a song called Teen Horniness is Not a Crime, which is hilarious. Teen Horniness is not a crime Open your heart and your mind Horniness is on the rise Look inside and you Good luck, by the way, trying to explain this shit and manipulate people in the 18th century. And the 16th century before that. And fucking cavemen before that, because I'm assuming time goes on for quite a while. What about when this happened in dinosaur times, folks? She's doing a little flappy-handed T-Rex being manipulated. T-Rex trying to move things with his little arms. TK T-Rex. New cartoon coming to 1992. Another important point is whether Donnie chooses to die. The Donnie we see in bed at the end is not the same Donnie from the last 28 days. How much knowledge he has of what has happened in the Tangent Universe is very questionable. It's very unlikely that he knows he is about to die. The question... You... Can I get to this last paragraph? Then you tell me why he's a you fucker. The question of destiny plays quite a big part here. Donnie was meant to die, but Frank saved him. It's possible he is chosen as the living receiver because his life is now expendable. He's going to die anyway. Once back in the real world, it's Donnie's destiny to die. And again, I dispute that because that engine falling from the sky is not the natural course of time. 
It's a result of a glitch. He's only fated to die because of the glitch. The glitch is the opposite of fate. Everything about that tangent universe should not have happened. Ergo, Donnie shouldn't have died. He should have had a good night's sleep. His decision to remain in bed is open to a lot of interpretation. Okay, what were you going to say about you, fucker? Right, okay. The fundamental point of this, for me, is, is Donnie's reaction at the end. Um, part of the reason that I really don't like the uh, diagrammed time reversal sequence is that it makes the whole thing look like a, a controlled timeline repair, very complex and mechanistic and something Make, that's being done by engineers somewhere. It makes it look like a mega CD game is what it makes it well, look like. Well, yes, there is that. But, <laughs> but the point being, what it takes away from the original version is the simplicity of a decision. When Donnie says, I can breathe a sigh of relief because there will be so much to look forward to, there will, but not for him because he dies. But that's okay because it's the choice he's made. If you take that choice away from him, then seriously, what's the fucking point? And I'm not talking about what's the point in reabsorbing the tangent universe or whatever else. What's the, the point, point of, of this making film? the movie? There is a lot that isn't explained, and I'm okay with that. It's like a Salvador Dali painting. You don't necessarily have to have every iota of it made logically clear for it to be artistically enjoyable. But if you keep talking about it as though it's perfectly logical, both within the movie and without, you confuse the fuck out of people. Yeah, because it, all of a sudden it becomes all of this stuff is important. You take away the human drama of it if you put the focus on the scientific explanations and, well, why did this happen and, and really why did this happen? Now, I, I, there are films where I've sat there and gone, well, this makes absolutely no sense. I need more logical explanation for why this happened. But generally speaking, what it comes down to is are the people behaving like emotionally consistent humans? I, can, I will accept anything else. You don't have to explain much else to me, as long as your characters are behaving like emotionally consistent humans. Alternative explanations, and then in brackets he would like to put wrong explanations. There is little doubt that this movie is very much open to interpretation. There are several possible explanations, and in most cases plenty of viewers will love it, even though they have no idea what happened. To be honest, there can't be many people who completely understand this movie the first time they watched it unless they had some inside knowledge. Are you manipulated living? The real explanation follows the philosophy of time travel, and you can read the real explanation. You can follow it, read it here. When you follow this explanation, there doesn't seem to be any holes in the plot. Yes, there do. There do seem to be holes in the plot, in terms of just the, in, the ridiculous lengths of the theatrics to simply remove a superfluous object from an unstable timeline. There's so much shit that goes on that doesn't need to happen. The real explanation follows the philosophy of time travel, and you can read it here. When you follow the explanation, there doesn't seem to be any holes in the plot. Every scene makes sense, the story is consistent, and the whole movie comes together. Here are some of the alternative theories, otherwise known as wrong theories. 
Schizophrenia. It is implied in the film that Donnie is a schizophrenic and therefore the film is him going through an episode of his illness. The theory is plausible because every single event could be put down to this. Hallucinations and hearing voices is a schizophrenic trait and could easily explain Frank's appearance. There is a scene with Donnie's therapist at the end of the film where she admits to giving Donnie placebos as medication for his illness. This would suggest that he in fact never was a schizophrenic. For me, Richard Kelly put the idea of Donnie being a schizophrenic into the movie deliberately as a red herring. It's an easier alternative uh, theory that allows first-time viewers to still enjoy the movie. Oh, screw you. From his point of view, there are many alternative theories and one true theory. The alternative theories are just people who didn't get it and make stuff up to so make... What, so the alternative theories are tangent theories and he has to go through them all, pulling bits out of them in order to cause them to collapse. We're reviewing this guy, by the way, not I the know. movie. I I don't even know who he is. We'll call him Jared, shall we? <laughs> <clears throat> dream. The whole movie was a dream. This is my friend Vic's theory. Uh, it is, of course, possible, but ultimately pointless. When he goes to sleep on... As is this blog. Uh, when he goes to sleep on October 2nd at the beginning of the movie, he dreams this mystical adventure just before he gets smushed by a jet engine. By jet... Smushed by jet engine. Smushed by jet engine. The Donnie Darko story. <laughs> The obvious hole in this theory is why do the first few minutes of October 2nd happen twice? An easy theory to enjoy, maybe for the first watch, but why would a director create this amazing magical alternative universe theory and then just make it all out to be a dream? Well, he wouldn't be the fucking first, would he? Donnie is shown the future. <clears throat> this is quite a popular theory. This, I should stop. No, keep going. It portrays Frank as a kind of ghost of Christmas future character who saves Donnie and then either shows him or allows him to live the next 28 days of his life. At the end, Donnie returns back to October 2nd and now has the opportunity to choose his own fate. So many bad things happened in those 28 days, including his girlfriend getting killed and Donnie becoming a killer himself, that he decides to stay in bed at the end of the film to sacrifice himself for the good of others. By dying, he saves Frank, Gretchen, and his mother and sister from a plane crash. See, that would have been my original interpretation of why Donnie stays there, um, simply because the common element that affects all of those people's lives is, is Donnie. Him. Yeah. If he takes himself out of it, that is the one way he can ensure that um, those exact events don't happen. He can't ensure that none of them happen, but he can at least stack the odds in their favour. That was my reason for him mm. deciding that. Yeah, I think that is consistent with Donnie's character. It's consistent with... Uh, the way the events play out and the way they return to the original timeline. The biggest weakness in this theory is the fact that Donnie is shown or lives out a completely different future from what would normally have happened. Most of the events only happen because we are within a tangent universe. Frank gets Donnie to flood the school, which means Donnie walks Gretchen home. Frank gets Donnie to burn down Cunningham's house, which leads to the party. Donnie rips the engine off the plane his mother and sister are on. None of these things would happen in the real world. <laughs> What's the point in Donnie being shown an alternate future and then given the choice to live or die based on events that won't happen? Won't happen. W-O-N-T. There are just too many plot flaws with this theory. It just doesn't work and there are virtually no scenes in the movie to back it up. The looping tangent universe. Here is a theory out there that follows the philosophy of time travel, but with one major change. The idea is that every 28 days the tangent universe collapses, then loops back around to October 2nd and starts over again. Basically the tangent universe is a repeating time loop that will continue until Donnie is successful in returning the jet engine into the primary universe. The film is Donnie's first successful attempt to return the jet engine and have been several failed attempts before. This is the Bioshock Infinite 
explanation, which must have occurred more recently. This explanation can be read at www.themoviegoer.com slash Donnie Darko. One of the reasons the theory is so popular is that it usually comes up in the first page of Google. If you search for Donnie Darko explanation, they should go straight to mine. I don't think this idea follows the philosophy of time travel accurately enough. The tangent universe only lasts for several weeks before it collapses and destroys the whole universe. If it is looped back around every time, then the universe wouldn't be in danger. This theory seems to hinge on only a few pieces of the movie. The main basis of this... You're figuring this, that the tangent universe perhaps doesn't transcend fourth-dimensional space, effectively taking place in only the blink of an eye in the primary universe. <sighs> Mind blown explain why there's so many eyes oh very good every time you have an image of an eye that's the tangent universe shifting to the next one see donnie doesn't row he doesn't row no he doesn't row oh i see what you mean this theory seems to hinge on only a few pieces of the movie. The main basis of this theory is that Donnie wakes up in the mountain laughing at the beginning of the film. He's laughing as if he remembers something from the previous Tangent Universe's loop. Now, the major flaw there is that Donnie wakes up on the mountain October 1st, yet the Tangent Universe doesn't start until midnight on October 2nd. Why would the time loop round to before the start of the Tangent Universe? Another thing is, wouldn't you find it a little amusing if you woke up halfway up a mountain? Surely that is a better explanation for him laughing. Good grief! Another huge flaw in this theory is that if it were true, the universe would never be in any danger. Every time Donnie failed, the 28 days would just be a restart. This goes completely against the POTT and makes the whole thing quite pointless. Another point in this theory is that the characters like Miss Pomeroy and Grandma Death, Dr. Thurman, all seem to have some kind of inside knowledge and a sense of what's going on. Dr. Thurman doesn't even have inside knowledge of psychology. Like they have done this before. Well, yes, they do, but not because they've done this several times before. It's because they are in the manipulated living. Their behavior may be irrational or bizarre, but they are trying to guide the living receiver to return the artifact they subconsciously behave in the necessary way in order for Donnie to succeed. So, four things that I really don't like about this film. Number one, snobby, pushy, arrogant fans trying to make everyone who doesn't understand the film or who disagrees with them on how to take the film as far as I'm concerned, if Richard Kelly is making an art film of this type, you think and feel whatever you want about it. Just don't be an asshole about it. Like, we've got our theories. I, like, I say it doesn't make sense. Like, I've tried and tried to wrap my head around this. I've listened to this theory. It doesn't make a full cogent sense. And I have accepted that on some level. Like, it maybe someone will be able to illustrate it for me. I think you're going to have to do it with like stickman pictures to really make it clear to me. I think when it comes down to it, I actually do, now that I've read it over and over again, understand the mechanics of what's being laid down. But those summon up so many questions about the elaborateness of what is actually going on that it renders that explanation unsatisfying. It's also completely irrelevant to the human story that's going on. Bingo. Because we've talked for 40 minutes now about the mechanics of what's actually going on. But there is a whole film occurring here, which is way better than that. Number two on the four things I don't like about this film, the crass additions to the director's cut that make the film less powerful. And there are various musical changes as well. The director's cut starts not with The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunny Men, but with In Excess, Never Tear Us Apart.
Don't ask me What you know is true Don't have to tell you I love your precious heart I I was standing You were there Two worlds collided And they could never tear us apart Which isn't as good a song or as appropriate for like it doesn't it's got this as opposed to this driving force of of the killing moon and that sort of haunting quality to just a much much better song and also the lyrics completely change the tone of where the film goes and they effectively make this a my dead girlfriend story (laughs) which it is not impenetrable pretentiousness of the additional materials and extra reading. That's not the film itself, but if you go to the website, donnydarko.org.uk, everything we've just read you, if you go and what, like listen to what Richard Kelly has to say about the film, if you go into all of the theory and stuff, and we didn't even begin to read the comments, they go on for page after page after page Have you after seen them? page. They're yeah. all... Um, spam, please send right. me money for my The most recent ones stories. are all about curing herpes but there, there's like 31 pages of this stuff it's, you know, it shows the jet engine coming off the plane in the future, but what cause in this normal universe, if the over-universe has been reversed, the other universe being reversed would mean that there would never have been moved the jet engine through the portal, which means the jet engine would not fell through the roof it's shit like that, endless yammer 
Uh, number four, the fact that, to me, at least, it doesn't make any sense anymore. It used to, but it doesn't anymore. Like I said, the, uh, the, like, it, it does kind of make sense, but it, it sums up so many questions as that, like, it, it, it poses more questions than the actual explanation answers. That was the thing, like, I was like, I think I pretty much get it, then I did more reading, I was like, what, fucking fifth dimensional beings? You kidding me? And number five, Donnie's fucking moronic friends and the Smurf and Rabbit discussions, which are the Rabbit discussions in the uh, director's cut, which are asinine and make Donnie seem like a complete prat. His friends are shit. I have to admit, I like those. I think the the what they demonstrate um, when you say the Rabbit discussion, do you mean the bit of, of when they're talking about Watership Down in the classroom, where Donnie's like, you know, all these fucking pretty rabbits, they just want to fuck. Right. That, to me, demonstrates that Donnie is starting to limit his empathy, Mm -hmm. which is a really bad sign. Mm -hmm. And Karen is so exhausted Mm -hmm. at that point because she's been fired by this stage. She she can't can't do anything about it. But Gretchen does. Yeah. But they don't elaborate on that. Indeed. Like, that's just a brief bit and it's in the director's cut. So it's not even really part of what's happening to Donnie. Mm. And his fixation on the idea that basically as long as there's fucking in your life, everything's going to be okay. Um, which the Smurf thing about, you know, what's the point of living if you don't, you don't have, have a, a dick. dick. That, to me, is kind of just emphasis of the, the fact that he's a teenager. And that all of this really is, is pretty beyond him. And that's not surprising. <clears throat> okay. But there are ten things that I love about the film. And I just had to limit it to ten. This was hard. I had to combine a few. Um, number 10, Drew Barrymore and Noah Weil as two really great teachers. Uh, Miss Pomeroy and um, uh, Mr. Is it Mr. or Dr. Monotov? Dr. Monotov. Dr. Monotov. These are like, I've never had teachers like this. And I would really have loved it. And, you know, like, uh, like seeing Noah Wilde, I was like, why was Noah Wilde not in more movies? You know, I mean, he, he he was in ER. I never used to watch that. But like, you know, George Clooney went off and did the movies, and he just like George Clooney is the rock of ER. Like every other person on ER is just like motherfucker. Yeah, Noah Wilde is briefly in A Few Good Men. That's not good enough. No, I know. But yeah, now Drew Barrymore actually exec produced this, and uh, it shows because her character has you know she's really on the ball. This is Drew Drew at her best. She's really, really, like, she cares about this role. Frankly, this is the Drew Barrymore I really wish we saw a lot more of. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Number nine, the details. We're going to go into some uh, in in a bit, but basically if you go through this movie, Richard Kelly, for all of the bollocks that we just listed, is really good at, like, seeding little things and little details. Sometimes it's a little too flagged. And again, sometimes he's crass in, like... Sometimes he says things way too loudly and in your face. But sometimes it's just in the back there and you don't notice it until either he mentions it in the commentary or you watch it a couple of times and you go, what is that? Like, I I noticed today that Donnie's hung up a bunch of um, Frank the Bunny, um, like, paper chain things at Halloween. Lyra noticed that for me. I I had never noticed that in in multiple, multiple viewings of this film. The uh, visual storytelling in the the sequence... the school when they arrive and it plays head over heels yeah. there's loads of things that are just just seeded there that you can pick up on or not the fact that you've got the the bully kid snorting coke from his locker and mm. the headmaster walks past sees quite clearly what they're doing and does sweet fanny adams about it the bully kid is called seth but not 
Seth, Seth Rogen. Rogen. Seth Rogen. Who is the bully kid's friend? Is Ricky. That must have been confusing. Seth. Yep. <laughs> no, Seth. What? Um, number eight, the script. It's really pretty tight. It's really engaging. Like, it's cerebral, it's human, it's dryly funny. We're both peeking into the lives of people back in the past. And as every year goes by, we're blessed with more and more perspective and knowledge about that period and the years that would follow. And you get the impression that he really knows the characters as well. It feels in part semi-autobiographical, if not in events, in character dynamics. Uh, number seven, Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, this was the first time where we had ever seen him, because uh, I hadn't seen City Slickers. Watching it, like a, a, a lesser actor, an Ashton Kutcher, would not have been able to pull this guy off. The butterfly effect is evidential of this. And there are times when he's genuinely tragic and um, pitiable. Do you know who he reminded me of? And this is a little ironic. Tobey Maguire? Heath Ledger. Well, Tobey Maguire would also have been ironic because Gyllenhaal was in the running to play Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, what do you think his Peter Parker would have been like? Very better. mopey, much more like Very this. Very mopey, but better. Yeah. In my humble opinion. Um, but yeah, Heath Ledger. And um, there are elements of the some men just want to watch the world burn hmm. in this as well. Yeah. Uh, number six, the range of attitudes towards mental illness. There's a lot of different characters who are uh, have Donnie's and other people's mental, mental illness laid at their feet and react to it in different ways. Some people are sympathetic. Some people are a little bewildered and don't quite know what to say. Some people are outwardly cruel. Some people try to ignore it. It's really neat to actually see the... Uh, I mean, that you know, when you've got a range, that's realistic because no, there's no one way that people react to um, a frightening, let's face it, and confusing um, mental condition which Donnie's going through. Mm, absolutely. And the fact that it's set in 1988 as well means that some of the more, for want of a better word, primitive responses are mm. consistent and believable. Um, although, speaking of there being a range of responses, what I really would have liked to see in this is a different therapist because then we might have had a chance of getting a good one. Yeah, it would have been good to point to uh, Thurman and say, she's a bad therapist because she is a bad therapist. I'll ask you about her in a sec. Yeah. Number five, the soundtrack. Killing Moon, we've already said. Head Over Heels, we've already said. Notorious. That's such a great sequence. Richard Kelly's really good at combining music with what's going on. He's Zack Snyder levels of good. And Mad World, of course, at the end. Now, a lot of people bitched and moaned about this, and uh, these are sort of included in the various people that I am sick to death of hearing talking about this film. Um, they hate Mad World. They hate the fact that it was played at, you know, funerals and in adverts and in the Gears of War trailer. Um, and, yeah, it was overused. But you can't really blame the film for its overuse. No. It's kind of like blaming Marvel films for all the other studios being gutless and trying to copycat them. Mm. It's trying to like it's kind of blaming Frozen for having such a fucking catchy song that it gets played again and again and again. It doesn't diminish the quality of the film, though it is a contributory factor in a lot of people's lessening appreciation of it. Mm. And I understand that. Um, number four, Beth Grant. Oh my god, this woman is amazing. And this is the performance of her life. I would say put her in everything, but they do already. She's she in everything. She keeps turning up. She's astonishing. 
And she's almost always playing a version of Kitty Farmer. Mm. She's hilarious and tragic and like, ugh, if you, especially if you live in America, she's kind of your nemesis if you're listening to this show because she defies intelligence. She defies questioning. She defies independence and she defies anger. And it's so, fr- like, she's almost like Umbridge, but clueless. Mm. And terrified, that's the other thing. She sells it so well. Yeah. But there are a handful of moments in this that make it absolutely clear that this woman is terrified of mm. life, of people, of everything around her. I don't know if you noticed at the end, she's got a daughter. The bed, when she's sitting up and like holding like herself um, frightened, there's no one else in that bed. We never hear about her husband. She's lonely as fuck. Of course she is. The What she does does not garner her good friends. And that's sad. And the, the, for, for Beth Grant to make and Richard Kelly to make us feel sorry for this woman, this obnoxious, awful woman, is quite an achievement. I never even felt sorry for Umbridge. <laughs> as well just in terms of support cast she I mean this is one of the first no actually uh, Contact Contact was the first thing we've seen she was in this would have been one of the earlier ones though it's it's not a bad performance and it's one of the reasons that I like Jenna Malone she's done better since oh yeah she was only young when she did this yeah no it's it's um, one of the things that Lyra noticed is another great little detail um, in the director's cut, I don't know if they actually show it in the um, regular version because we saw I saw the director's cut twice today, folks. That's how thorough we've been. After the uh, theatre, which she slept through the entirety of the Evil Dead, they're on the hillside and she's sleeping there as well. And Lyra commented, she's sleeping a lot. Mm. And I inferred that when she's at home, she can't sleep because she's, she's afraid her safe. father will come back. Absolutely. And to a point, I think there is a there's a degree to which Gretchen is a bit of an empty vessel in this. Yeah. And I think that's deliberate because she is effectively a construct of the tangent universe. And she's being puppeteered just to make the man do something. Absolutely. Absolutely. However, there's something that's quite key to Gretchen about why Donnie being in her life 
is potentially a good thing, despite the conclusion that he appears to reach, which is that she would be better off if he was dead and they'd never met. Mm. The night of the party... Uh, her, the, the theory is you never find out whether this is accurate to what's actually happened but her stepfather has come back to the house trashed the place her mother is gone the police tell her to go to a safe place the only safe place she has is Donnie's house hmm. now this is nothing to do with the tangent universe she's in Middlesex anyway which means her stepfather has done the stabbing anyway in the primary universe and it's entirely possible that if she never meets Donnie, mm -hmm. then the night that happens, mm -hmm. she has no safe place to go to. Yeah. And she dies anyway. It's not notified. We are notified that uh, Dr. Monotov did die in 1999. Uh, he died in a car accident. Thanks, Richard Kelly. It's important that you tell us this shit. Eulogize these uh, characters. Um, and... Uh, yeah, he died in an accident. That means that uh, he and uh, Pomeroy, if they indeed stay together, have 11 years of happiness before he is taken. Um, you're going to be taken, while. It's worth mentioning Patrick Swayze in this. It's, a, it's kind of a thankless task in that he's this annoying, superficially detestable character, kind of like Beth Grant. But he's also playing this insidious piece of shit underneath. And Patrick Swayze sells both aspects of him. He's fantastic, and he's so sorely missed. An alternate parallel universe, he's playing John Wick. Oh, I'll add one more thing to my five things that I don't like about this film to make it six. The Jesus parallels, especially in the director's cut, are a little fucking on the nose from Richard on the nose Kelly. That you could be on his gravestone. You, you don't, don't need them at all, but they are layered on thick. Um, it's already a superhero story, which means the implications there anyway. Dr. Thurman keeps bringing up God because she feels like that that the uh, idea of a higher power might be what's what's upsetting Donnie, which technically it is. It totally is. It's just it's her interpretation of these uh, um, these beings that are manipulating Donnie is God and his belief and or fear of them. Uh, him. But that means she's dabbling in existential therapy in a way that does not help him in the slightest. Yeah, uh, she asks him about uh, God. He, say, he responds, I don't see any proof. I don't debate it anymore. It's absurd. And she asks the search for God. And he says, yes, it's absurd if everybody dies alone. Um, then he tells Cunningham, you're the fucking Antichrist. Then he talks to Monotov about traveling along God's channel. And Monotov's like, I am not going to be able to continue this conversation. Which, again, makes him feel like very much manipulated living there. Like, mm, the boy knows too much. I, I had an insight on that this time. It works on I two levels. It works on several. Because yeah. he's like, oh, this guy's going to go on a fucking shooting spree. Because he believes himself to be God. You know, I can't talk to you about this stuff, Donnie. You're going to need to talk to your therapist about it. Uh, like I say, it, it works on multiple levels, as does, frankly, the, um, Furman trying to talk him round regarding Frank at the end. Then he walks out of, like, the Evil Dead is screening. It's a, it's a double bill with The Last Temptation of Christ. Someone on cited Halloween? this... Someone cited this as a reason for uh, for his theory that Donnie is in fact the son of God being manipulated. And the idea is, man, you don't realise this man, but Jesus was a living receiver, man. And he, like, changed the world. He got rid of a metal object and uh, died for our sins. Yep. 
because I think that seems to be what Richard Kelly's uh, saying as well. Like you, I, I could forgive someone for making that interpretation, uh, even Dennis Hopper, like I was doing there. Yeah, the Last Temptation of Christ is not a Halloween spooktacular film. R- then he starts ranting about rabbits. That suggests a certain level of disconnection from the human race where he's looking down upon them as insects, uh, much like a serial killer might, uh, or indeed someone who believes himself to be God, which is what Monotop was afraid of. Um, then uh, Miss Pomeroy comes, drops the clangor about the deus ex machina, the God machine, uh, then, when he's talking to uh, Thurman again later, she, uh, you know, he's talking about seeing the master plan, and she means, do you mean God's master plan? Then she goes off on a spiel about him being agnostic and what that means to be agnostic. Uh, then there's the recurring beautiful church-appropriate music, including a lot of choral stuff. Um, and then, finally, uh, you know, he is, in fact... A living receiver who literally dies to save everyone. Uh, and this was prearranged and fated by a higher intelligence. And he was obviously afraid. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane at the end. And then he collects himself. And then he pushes himself forwards and dies for our sins. It's not even a subtext. That's fucking text. So yeah, that's the sixth. Uh, but back to the things that are really, really good. Moments of quiet personal reflection. Just like little bits where Samantha's on the trampoline or, or, or Donnie and his mother are talking or Donnie and his father are talking or Donnie and his sister are talking or Charita is sitting out uh, on the uh, mongrel having bared her soul to an audience, her greatest fear, and they didn't laugh at her. They, in fact, applauded her and now she feels not invincible but less scared. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge moment for her, and it's entirely inferred, but it's a lovely little, quiet, introspective moment. And this film, in its original theatrical version, has a lot of those. In the director's cut, um, a hell of a lot of those are stepped upon. Uh, i got to say a huge thank you to Sam Bauer and Eric Strand, who were... The editors. The editors. But I had a look at their filmography. They haven't done a whole lot else that I recognise or or know to be particularly good. So I don't know how these chemical elements all came together. Maybe they were manipulated living. Maybe they were. So yeah, that was number three. uh, The moments of quiet personal reflection. Number two, the music by Michael Andrews that I've already said. It's wonderful. I've been listening to this soundtrack since this film came out. Uh, For whom the bell tolls in particular is that um, piece when he's... Why do you wear that stupid bunny suit? That's it, it affects me on the inside um, levels of music, and um, it, it's it's fantastic. And again, cues up exactly with what's on screen, um, as long as it doesn't get slathered with extra sebulba, which uh, it does in the director's cut. And number one, my favourite thing about this, it's Mary McDonnell as uh, Rose Darko, um, his mother. Of all the actors in this, she is fucking fantastic the most like every single little expression you get what's inside rose's head and it's very low-key like she's never like raging in there but you can just tell like it's especially when beth grant comes to her door um kitty and just says you know sometimes i doubt your commitment to sparkle motion that's a hilarious moment but just watch Watch Mary McDonnell throughout that entire conversation just registering how she feels about Kitty at different moments and how Kitty, you know, how she's reacting. That's an acting masterclass for Mary McDonnell and I completely understand how she became the president. Mm -hmm, Indeed. (laughs) That woman's ability to maintain a straight face and yet still 
convey mm. exactly what she feels on the inside yeah. is incredible. But by extension, I'm also including the entire Darko family. So that's Holmes Osborne as Eddie Darko, Maggie Gyllenhaal as Elizabeth, which, by the way, it was a masterstroke sticking those two together because they really genuinely do work off that closeness that they have. At the end, when Maggie Gyllenhaal is torn apart by as they're, they're, they're wheeling Donnie out, She's picturing her real, actual brother dead, and that's that's real, right there. And uh, David, little David Chase as Samantha Darko, that's Lilo, and uh, she was also Samara in those shitty Ring films. Uh, she's also in S Darko. We'll only mention it here. We'll only mention it once. It's fucking shite. Don't watch it. It can only make things worse. What I'm getting at with my number one is this feels like a real family. The way that Kelly's put this together, their exchanges, their interchanges, their tensions, Donnie's teasing of his sister and clashing with his his older sister, uh, and the worry and the humour of the parents feels so real, so tangible, and so poignant and bittersweet. It powers this movie. I don't care that it doesn't make sense because it's a story about a family. Yeah, and I've got some examples of that myself. You've got the the familiarity between Rose and Eddie is so incredibly natural and that yeah. is missed in movie relationships over and over again. Just the moments when they're just lying with each other and not saying much of anything or murmuring quietly to one another, that feels real. Richard Kelly was 22 when he directed this. That's an astonishing feat. And he burned brightly for one moment and then was lost because he hasn't been able to reach this since then. He was seriously, I mean, everyone was unlucky with 9-11, but he really was unlucky because basically that scuppered his chance, his one chance. And it's become a cult hit, but cult hits don't tend to get you loads of new work. It did actually pick up in the UK, like uh, Mad World became like a, a number one, it was a Christmas hit it was, over here. yeah, I remember them playing it at a Christmas yeah. do-I. That was 2003, two years after the original American theatrical release. Eddie's advice to him as well, which I, I was racking only my in the brain, that's cut. only in the director's cut, yep. isn't it? I love that It's bit. really great. It, it's basically, it's the best dad advice ever. He effectively says to him, I mean, it's it's Disney all over. Be yourself. But he, the fact that he says to him, be honest. There are people out there who do not know how to tell the truth. It's just they, they're all trying to twist things and manipulate things. It will scare them if you tell the truth. But do it anyway. That's really good advice. So, yeah, those are my top ten. Have I missed anything of... Uh, like? in there that would have been on your top 10 aspects of this film that I haven't mentioned um I think in terms of aspects and elements you've you've certainly got the the bulk of it there um, I didn't mean to gobble them all down myself no, but I just wanted to no, that's absolutely I right. wanted to offset the fact that I've been very very scathing for an hour mm, of course I, I know I'm not the best communicator but whatever happens to you be honest. Tell the truth. Even if they do look at you funny, they will. But what you've got to understand, son, is that almost all of those people are full of shit. <laughs> that-
They're all part of this great big conspiracy. Bullshit. And they're scared of people like you. Because those bullshitters know that you're smarter than all of them. <laughs> you know what you say to people like that? Hmm? Fuck you. <laughs> 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 that is said to a very troubled young man, a son that he can't stop worrying about, but doesn't know how to communicate and reach him in any other way. So it's this lovely, simple, <sighs> bricks out of the briefcase moment. I, I like what you said about the um, the range yeah. of reactions to mental illness. Mental illness. Yeah. One of the reactions that I, I particularly like is Donnie's himself. Yeah. The way he accepts that he has emotional problems. He is very quick to talk about it with Gretchen. He doesn't do so in a way that, that indicates that he feels ashamed of it or um I mean he he gets that it's not great and that it makes him do things that are uh potentially dangerous and harmful. Uh, but he doesn't seem to feel as though it's something to be overly embarrassed about, um, albeit that he does think his behaviour in rushing to ask Gretchen to be his girlfriend when they have had precisely three quarters of a conversation mm-hmm. um, is a bit of a daft move. But hey, it, he kind of he sort of teases himself about it as well. I think I mean the the dining conversation at the beginning of the movie where he talks about um, you know maybe Elizabeth should be in therapy instead of him so that they don't all have to listen to her thoughts it gets quite aggressive quite quickly mm-hmm. but I do get the impression that, that jibing at the fact that he has to go to therapy and take medication is something that he does as a coping mechanism quite a bit yeah um, and again, it feels real. It feels genuine. There's an authenticity to the performances, and it comes out in the way that um, that they behave when they're in the background as well. The the minor things that happen when you're not looking at them. Um, there's a moment when the jet engine's fallen and the FAA agents are there and they're talking to uh, Eddie and Rose and behind them as they go away with the agents to have this conversation Maggie Gyllenhaal is just talking to Davy Chase and puts her arm around her and kind of, you can see her lips moving as she's basically saying you know are you okay mm-hmm. um, and it just makes everything <coughs> surrounding the focus of the shot feels real mm-hmm. like this is all actually happening um and I, I know sometimes we'll talk about things like that happening and, and be like, you know, this is basically just filmmaking 101. But there are so many films that come out that don't do that, where it's like you're looking at this one thing in the middle of the screen, that's happening, it doesn't matter what's going on in the background, mm. just ignore everything else. Everybody else can just, you know, it doesn't matter. If I'm not directing them to do it, they're not doing anything. Absolutely. And, and it's what that in my opinion, comes down to, and this is reinforced by the fact that the director's cut is a poorer version because it over-explains, because it over-complicates. And Southland Tales is interesting, but it's not great. This is casting. Yeah. This film lived and died on its casting. Yeah. That was the first thing that struck me when I was making my notes, just the tremendous casting. I I needed to hone in more, but... Mm. um, yeah, if uh, you know Dermot Mulroney as his father, and it's already fucked. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Mm. And that. And speaking of um, Freddie Prince, I don't know. I quite like Freddie Prince in, in more recent years. Matthew Lillard as Donny. Yeah. <laughs> Um, speaking of um, Mary McDonnell as well and her, her performance and the emotional range that she displays yeah. and the fact that that range is all done in such subtle ways, there was a moment that struck me at the end this time when it pans past the family and they're all in tears apart yeah. from her. Yep. Her son is dead and she can't cry. That's when I get the feeling that... Um like I said, she's internalizing everything, and it's never—it never seems to be particularly huge. But at this point, you know that it's huge, mm, yeah. and that suggests that all of those times that she has been holding it back, it might in fact have been quite intense. Mm. But she held it back. Yeah. There is a line exchange between them uh, that's my favorite in the film, and it's uh, how does it feel to have a wacko for a son, and. She's incredibly natural about it. She considers the line for a, a moment and she says truthfully and from the heart, it feels wonderful. Meaning, I don't mind. This, you know, it's... You are my son. And that almost never happens in movies. and like Not in like a way which isn't... Ch- cheesy or overwrought or overplayed this is so slight in its delivery so vulnerable Mm. it's a fantastic moment and that thus conveys the depths of anguish she's feeling at that last point Mm. not least because I suspect there's an element of ambiguity in there coming off the back of the conversation that um, I would say she and Eddie have with Dr Thurman but Eddie says virtually nothing um, so it, it's basically her. But she she says, I just, well, words to this effect, I just want him to have some kind of relief. Now, the fact is that in that moment when they're wheeling him out of the house, he has some kind of relief. Yeah. And I, I believe there is a tiny part of her who thinks at least his anguish is over now. And that's a, that's an awful thing to think that somebody might think in that situation, but from her her demeanour and her response, I would imagine that to be part of it. This leads me to lay upon you one of the darkest, quietest, most subtly handled and profound moments of the film: Donnie's choice. It could be that he believed that he was dying for Gretchen and Frank to protect them and ensure their existence. It could be that he got a shade of the massive unspoken stakes inferred by That is when the world will end. Meaning everything will end and he dies for all of our sins. But given everything else in the film, it could also be that Donnie simply seeks for a close to all of this. He has a troubled life, one where his confused, passionate behaviour frequently alienates him from everyone else. His friends may like him, but they would never be able to meet him in a true discussion about all of this, and as much as they would undertake to, neither could his family. Even his therapist is at a loss. As much as people might try their very hardest to help him, it is often the case that one realises one has had enough. 
I found out yesterday that Chester Bennington, the lead singer of one of my favourite bands, Linkin Park, took his life. A few months ago, he sang at the funeral of another of my all-time musical heroes, Chris Cornell, who made the same decision. Cannot have escaped Richard Kelly's attention that the singer of Never Tear Us Apart in his director's cut, Michael Hutchins of NXS, also committed suicide, as did the lead singer of Joy Division, Ian Curtis, whose song Love Will Tear Us Apart also features in this film. These deaths are made all the more poignant due to the amount of people these men helped through incredibly rough low periods, where with their songs, they felt like fellow passengers to the grave and not some estranged celebrities of another species. The line, every living creature on this earth dies alone, is never more resonant than in this context. It is one thing to die by accident or illness or murder, powers beyond your control. It is another entirely to take that control back for yourself. Hence the name of the Curtis biopic in which it became apparent that, as with Kurt Cobain, a frightening aspect of performing on stage is how much the audience takes from you. And that applies to our everyday lives as well. You don't have to be a singer to feel that. I'm deeply saddened by suicide and I empathise with the plight of men and women of all ages who go through this process, whether they take the final step or are able to pull back from it. There is nothing more personal. Donnie Darko, for me, has at the core a family very much worried that they cannot keep their son alive. The seemingly accidental circumstances of how he eventually dies are confounded by this choice he makes to leave the world behind and that world feels lessened by his absence. Though there is also a sense of the strangely uplifting and relief. This was actually a commissioned episode by Jesse Ferguson, and we've Jesse, I think, contacted me first talking about time travel. I think he may have gotten in touch because of uh, my Bioshock timeline explained or something like that. I, we, I was discussing various theories on time travel, um, and I cited Donnie Darko as one of them, uh, which, by the way, shouldn't be a theory. It's so wishy-washy and all over the place that you can't really put it on a list of time travels. Not like Terminator, even Terminator. It, it's so rocky, basically. Uh, and I emphatically uh, recommended uh, seeing it. I, I called it a homework assignment. And he watched it twice and wasn't impressed. He felt and he still feels that while it's entirely possible, he just didn't get it. He gets the impression that Richard Kelly didn't actually get it either, but just threw a bunch of weird shit at the camera to see what would stick and is now taking credit for fans assigning deeper meaning to things that have none. So he commissioned this show assuming that he's wrong wanting to be wrong and hoping that we can help him to finally get it. I don't know if we have. We're going to need some feedback on this one. In case anyone's wondering about the differences in the extended version, I have a list here of uh, things that were added or it was like very rarely were t stuff taken out. But at the beginning, definitely loud bird song and very intrusive bird song is added to what is otherwise a very quiet introspective moment. Thus, from the very word go, setting you off on the wrong foot. So, 
you know, I'm not going to keep laying into Richard Kelly here. It seems like a misguided project that went too far. But um, that thing about take it away from the creator before they can... Not, it was not perfect. It was definitely a flawed film. But it was way better in its theatrical form. He also adds buzzing. Like, any time that it seems like the fifth dimensional beings are, like, observing, he adds kind of a buzz and a... In there. Um, which is very intrusive, especially if you're an audio engineer like myself. Um, he switched out The Killing Moon for Never Tears Apart by NXS. It's nowhere near as good. Um, then when Donnie wakes up, because Frank goes, you get an eye. And most of this new footage that gets added is stuff that was obviously not shot at the time and has been shot subsequently, or is just file footage, Ed Wood style. You know how Ed Wood chucked in, like, footage of missile launches into Plan 9 from Outer Space? Mm. Like that. Footage of waves crashing on a beach. He kept showing this blue eye, and yeah. I'm, I'm sat there thinking, whose eye is that? Because I don't think it's Jake Gyllenhaal. It's Jared Latos from Wickerham for a Dream. Quite possibly. Donnie's dad's talking about Frankie Fiedler, who died on his way to a prom, said he was doomed. Um, they then add... Um, you know, Donnie, people would say the same thing about Donnie, but he dodged his bullet. And it's like, well, no, no, you were there. Like, leave it with said he was doomed. That's haunting. That's really, really good. That's knowing when it's the right time to take the picture away from the child. Mm. There's a point where uh, Frank says, Pay close attention. You could miss something. He's saying that to the audience. In other words, you didn't get it because you weren't paying attention. Pay attention, you fuckers. Um, then when he has the dream, it's the eye again. There's a bit of extra added to the uh, lateness of the bus because the, uh, the the school's closed because they found feces everywhere. Um, there's a lot more fucks in this one. When Gretchen gives the finger to the bullies, she goes, fuck them! Whereas there was only one fuck in the original PG-13 release because you can only get one fuck in there. And that's, I think, you're the fucking Antichrist. Gretchen just giving a quiet finger is way more powerful than Gretchen going, Fuck him! That's out of character. Tis a bit. Um, and later on, uh, Donnie's awful friends say of uh, Kitty Farmer, She's such a fucking bitch. Um, then Kitty Farmer says, There was urine and feces flooding in my office. I think that was added extra. Can't remember them uh, doing yeah, that. I don't before. remember that. Uh, there are other fucks though. The um, you're such a fuckass, and why don't you just suck a fuck? I definitely. Remember oh, that you're no, yeah, original. no, you're absolutely right. This must have been an R then. I suppose yeah, Frank getting shot in the eye. Unless okay. it's the context, because they're really innocuous in that dining conversation. No, this would have been this would have been a fifteen in the UK. Oh well, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and um, yeah, in America it was rated R for language, uh, some drug, drug use, drug use, and yeah. violence. This is good shit, huh? Fucking cigarette. Um, I love the bit where uh, Donnie says uh, about, you know, everyone thinks that he's so rad, meaning Cunningham, but he's such a chud. Um, they were also going to include chud as the uh, film at the cinema. Where they, they, nobody had the rights to chud, so they managed to pull in a few favours to get Evil Dead instead. I'm just looking at the parental guidance information here. Frightening, intense scenes. Frank the Rabbit is disturbing. That's no the shit, Sherlock. That's the flipping decade. We'll talk about Frank in a second. Um, a major character's mother was supposedly abducted and killed. Spoilers, I suppose. Was it's she only, killed? It's only hinted. Basically, she's disappeared. They never say what's actually happened to Gretchen's mother. She's just gone. Right. A very emotional and shocking ending. Yep. I'm going to argue with that. 
There's a point where uh, Frank says, Don't worry, you got away with it. To Donnie, that's added for no reason. Uh, Samantha asks, Who are you talking to after Donnie's been talking to Frank? I seem to remember that's new. It could be in the original version. I'm, I've am i only seen the original version, like, seven or eight times, and the um, director's cut three times. Two of them were today. The only other time was that one time in 2004, and I was disgusted. There's some very on-the-nose poetry from Donnie Darko about, you know, like, I will save the entire world, I will take them away from the place where only I can see them, because I am Donnie Darko. Mm. Like, at which point Miss Pomeroy should have gone to see me after class. Yes, yes, she really should. What does this mean, Donnie? I, I, I do like that. It is very on the nose, and it does just underline, like I said, it's it's the Jesus metaphor that it's reinforcing effectively. Mm-hmm. The suffer the little children thing, and, and you don't need it. It doesn't need yeah. to be there. As soon as Roberta's, uh, the um, philosophy of time travel is handed to Donnie, we get about eight pages of it uh, scattered throughout the rest of the movie. As soon as Roberta Sparrow is named, we get an explanation uh, in the book as to... Uh, Tangent universes. Um, the the scene when they're eating out and um, Rose says, "I don't think any woman being told to forcibly insert something into her anus is something that should be rewarded. Is something that should go without consequences. Should go without consequences." And um, his father says, "I think we should buy him a moped. I think we should get a divorce." And then they grin at each other. That feels like something that should come immediately after that. Like this. Too much time has elapsed it in has. between. It re- I remember I was watching it. I was thinking that I was like that was ages ago. If, okay, first off, if it's going to be a consequence, it has to happen more or less immediately. Yeah. And uh, the pumpkin scene uh, takes considerably longer in the director's cut. When Donnie's stabbing time in the fourth dimensional construct, uh, while Rose is crying during the. Um, uh, therapy. Well, she's talking to the therapist scene. Uh, they add file footage of waves for no reason. Like, you know, use the water, Donnie. It's part of your powers, apparently. But like, it doesn't say that. It just shows us waves. That's not explaining shit. That's just adding extra things that like confusing. Gus Van Zant did that with his remake of Psycho. He threw in like a sheep about to get hit by a train, and it's like, what's that in there for? Or was it cow? I can't remember. Ooh, I saw the, that once. One other thing about the poem, actually, that I I did know as to part of why I like it, it it does hint at the fact that Donnie's the only one who can see the monsters mm-hmm. or the the danger that's in this universe, and because he can see it. It's his responsibility to fix, and that terrifies him. Yeah. Again, like I said, it is pretty on the nose, but I, I do kind of like it for that reason. The scene at the arcade without running a manipulated living bit from the uh, uh, philosophy of time travel, that's new. Um, his name is Frank scene with uh, Cunningham, and then he speeds up and Donnie goes, we're looking, we're moving through time. That's not that. That's added just to indicate that Donnie is perceiving time changing and moving differently. Mm. The living receiver is another page that gets added to the like. like basically, it's like a page turns up on the screen for a while. It's the cheapest new edit of like a way of crowbarring in information you could possibly get, and it's inelegant. You're basically, you're ladling the information from the website into the laps of people watching. It's like, here you go, you can't be bothered to go to the website, here's the information within the movie. And they're like, oh, okay. Contextually, this still doesn't make sense. No one ever says in the film, by the way, 
the tangent universe is unstable because of this duplicate item, but if that duplicate item is in the prime timeline, that's fine. No one ever says that. Without that fairly important information, your physics-based sci-fi philosophy major masturbatory session fritters itself out. When they're in the cinema and he sees the portal, there's also a flash of an eye with, uh, again, same as the beginning, like a, a, um, a graffiti tat of uh, Frank the Bunny in it. It's like, he's right there. You don't need to add extra Frank to the scene. You know what this needs? More Frank! Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is the original, but when he finds uh, Cunningham's wallet, uh, Frank mutters, Now you know where he lives. Didn't need that line at all, whether it's in the original or not. It's it's too much. It is totally superfluous. Um, Donnie tells his dad he's crazy, and then his dad says, that, you know, everyone else is part of this bullshit conspiracy and they're afraid of you because you're honest. That's one of the best scenes, and it's not in the original. It's a damn shame, actually. It's like how Alien 3, the assembly cut, has some really good stuff in it, but I can never accept, this is way better than the original, because they changed the ending. The Queen doesn't hatch out, so that ending doesn't have that oomph that you really need. Also, the part of the importance of that scene is it underlines why Eddie is even there. Eddie doesn't do much Hmm. in this film, but what he does do is observe... Then there's the Watership Down parallel and uh, Donnie's very blunt words about rabbits, which you like and I don't, but that's good because the whole scene is Donnie saying one thing and Gretchen challenging him. Um, there's a goodbye scene added after the uh, it's, It Feels Wonderful to Have a Wacko for a Son, the airport shuttle, that wasn't in the original. This is all equates to about ten minutes worth of extra stuff, folks. It's It's... If you can buy... The Blu-ray, and I recommend you do, if you can buy just the theatrical one, go for it. If you're really curious, see this extra one, but really just see it with a mind to, here's how this was botched, because the worst is still to come. Um, There's that whole agnostic versus atheist rant that uh, um, Thurman goes off on. And she's wrong as well. Yeah. Uh, th- yeah, I was like, that's not necessarily... I am an agnostic and that does not describe de- me. No, that's not the textbook definition of an atheist. It's not even the philosophical, uh, philosophical definition of an atheist. And that's certainly not the philosophical definition of an agnostic. Mm. When they're at the party, rather than uh, Under the Milky Way, it's The Killing Moon, because that was removed from the beginning, and it's nowhere near as good a scene. It doesn't fit as well mm. with the beats of the scene as the Milky Way does. And Richard Kelly chucks in some Outrun, because he's already uh, used the, reused the arcade scene, so chucks some Outrun on the screen. That happens at least twice. He's like, hey, some Outrun. Because if you think about it, we're all trying to outrun time. Outrun is the story of humanity. The rabbit trying to bug bollocks to that. Um, <laughs> oh my God, the crassness, the, the, like you really didn't need to do this overload occurs when Roberta Sparrow creeps up behind Donnie after Gretchen's been killed, after Frank's been murdered. And in the original theatrical version, she's just wandering off in the distance, like having played her part, but like she's being manipulated. But what did she say to him? What does she whisper in his ear just in case we weren't sure? Just after an eddy of wind catches Frank's costume. There's a storm coming. Storm's coming, Harry. Oh, storm's coming, Annie. That line is banned. He says there's a storm coming. Apart from there. 
there okay. you're allowed. That's, that's, that's it. fine. It has to be 1984 and you have to be Linda Hamilton. Yep. That's it. <clears throat> then when we get to the vortex um, and Donnie's thinking about what he's going to do, but we never actually see him using telekinesis. There's more of those eye screens, and they've plastered them on, because the, the, the fifth-dimensional beings are going, right, everyone get this one right, otherwise the entire universe dies. The thing is, you don't need any of those, and I will tell you for why. There is a massive picture of an eye that Donnie has drawn and is on his bedroom wall yeah. in, like, the second scene. Yeah. That's and, enough And we to return say, to that same eye with a skull in it. Absolutely. That is enough to say... And the great eye is ever watchful, and then you know it's there for the whole film. Trust your audience, Richard. Well, he, they're not idiots. He did trust his audience. He got so many questions. He was like, "Right, I right. will fucking no, tell you." No, then you have to ignore them. You have to say, you know what, the material is out there. You make of it what you will. Mm. The worst comes right after this, uh, during the rewind scene when the uh, Tangent Universe collapses in on itself and things go backwards. Richard Kelly overlays this already very visually resplendent scene with a grid, with fireworks, and with other visual noise, so you can't even see what you're looking at. It looks like just sick on screen. It's god-awful, and it ruins the ending of the film. It's a terrible choice. He should not have done it. And Donnie's voice is ramped up to really deafening, distorted proportions. It's quiet in the original film. They have to ramp it up because of the sound of fucking fireworks in the background. That's another thing as well. Um, Voice volume. Yeah. There's a couple of places where it's turned up for this. And one of the most significant is when um, Roberta Sparrow says to him for the first time... Every living creature on this earth dies alone. Yeah. In the original theatrical version, you do not hear what she says. Right. You find out later when Donnie is talking to Thurman about it. Nice. In this, you can hear her. <laughs> and then just after that, when you've been like, what was all that? And what is that grid? What like what what did Outworn have to do with all that? Like, when Donnie's laughing in his bed, it then cuts to one final fucking lecture about dreams. And it goes, dreams, some of the people that were affected in a tangent universe who have been manipulated living will get some flashbacks of the lives that they almost were about to lead but didn't. And then it cuts to Mad World. But he's gone... Because he has to have some audible accompaniment to these fucking sermons... And that interferes with the beginning of Mad World. So this beautiful like moment of quiet and then Mad World is stepped on. With this, here's how it works, fuckers, moment. This is exactly how not to do a director's cut. This is how to bugger up your own movie. It should not have happened. I would be interested to know how much of this was actually Richard Kelly going, this is the version I really wanted to make, and how much of it was some doofy producer saying to him, oh, Richard, nobody gets it. Come here, you have to explain this, this, and this. couple of final details. Um, the thing about fear and love kind of reminds me of Bill Hicks, as in he sort of reduced it to like ridiculously binary situation. That could have been better conveyed as selfish, selfless. With fear being the selfish side of it and selfless being the self... like Basically, it makes the questions easier to answer. Like, you know, she does she keep the money? Like, she keeps the money and returns the wallet 
for selfish reasons, but a little bit selfless in that she's returned the wallet, so that can go a few notches up in that direction. Mm. You know, she cheats on the test for selfish reasons, and that's it. There's nothing selfless about that. Mm. Fear and love, again, like, as Donnie says, it, it, it cancels out so much of the arrest of the human emotions. Absolutely, and I think the other thing is as well, the fact that it's the, the two things going on in this scene. The first is that it's, it's outlining the idea that when you try to reduce education down to black and white explanations because you think you're dealing with kids who don't understand anything, you you shortchange them wildly mm-hmm. because things are more subtle than that. Um, and it, it's kind of summed up in Kitty's eventual retreat into if you don't complete the exercise, you'll get a zero for the day. She doesn't really believe wholeheartedly and, and deeply in what she's presenting to them. This is not material that she has totally bought into. She is literally giving them something that comes out of a file, and if they don't do what, you know, they don't tick the relevant boxes, then they're not going to get their grade. Um, but the other thing is the fact that there is so many instances throughout the film of people displaying fear and love fused together. These are not opposing ends of a spectrum. Mm-hmm. It's uh, and when you look also at fear is an emotion. Love is not necessarily not really, an emotion. Absolutely, but also human emotion. Yes, it's a spectrum, but it's not a line. It's more like a color wheel. You've got things fading in that impact on others and. This level of, of response goes up and down in determined by what your external events are. And you can love your family and be afraid that they might be killed. Yeah, absolutely. D- at the end, Donnie is displaying love for the entire universe by sacrificing himself so that it can continue. That doesn't stop him being afraid. Yeah. Uh, a couple of other little things. When Donnie... Uh, bikes back in the morning at the very beginning and he goes past a red car he's driving past Frank Frank is driving past him having just dropped off his sister Dukakis versus Bush this uh, this uh, discussion they're having in the beginning uh, it was a really great way to ground it A in 1988 this was merely days before the actual final vote and everyone seems quite surprised when uh, Elizabeth's saying I'm voting for Dukakis and the whole thing about, well, you won't be able to afford braces because all those taxes that Democrats give you. Yeah, let's uh, let's uh, sit back and wait and see how well the Republicans treat health care, shall we? She's at a private school. Yeah. Or, well, she's not anymore, but presumably she went to the same school Donnie's at. Sidebar, this is a very middle class movie. Very. Even the bullies are well dressed. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, it is. It is a, a gorgeous part of uh, Virginia, and it's, it's very picturesque as well. Um, but that is an affluent neighborhourd mm. that he's on. Indeed. But yeah, I mean, uh, this, this was at a turning point for America, and it went for four more years of uh, Republican Elephant Beast. Mm. Again, the, um, the, the setting is done by visual storytelling as well. So you've got yeah. when he opens the uh, bathroom cabinet, I noticed there's a bottle of Old Spice in there. Yeah. And you've obviously got the date on his medication as well. Here's the thing that will scare you. Uh, it is now further away from when Donnie Darko was released than between when Donnie Darko was set and when Donnie Darko came out. Mm-hmm. And every subsequent day this podcast is out will take us further. Time, folks. Um, when Frank drops off Elizabeth at the house just before the engine goes through, he beeps at her, but he's actually beeping at Donnie. Not consciously, but 
that beep is a kind of a, hey, Donnie, wake up, you got some shit to do. Or indeed, don't wake up. There are plants in the audience when uh, um, that rat bastard Cunningham's doing his um, seminar where he's like, you know, good morning. That little kid who, who asks how he can get better at fighting is the same kid in his video who's, I'm not afraid anymore. Mm-hmm. Also, the woman who is apparently feeding fear with food, the mm-hmm. one who says about looking in the mirror, she's the one who turns up with the uh, newspaper at the school. Oh, seriously? Yep. Nice. Um, and also little Timmy, the, uh, the I'm not afraid anymore kid, is the one blowing autumn leaves on Charida when she's doing her uh, autumn angel dance. Mm. When Gretchen says, I don't want you want to kiss you right now, there's a fat guy stalking us. That's the aviation official. He's been watching the Darko family because they can't work out where this engine is from. And it's probably the commies. That's who that guy is. Part of what's causing the confusion, I would suspect, because they don't they say something about they can't match the serial numbers? Mm-hmm. Because the serial number, it's a duplicate. So they've got an engine with a serial number on it that suggests it's come from a plane yeah. that still has two engines. Sidebar, by the way, that plane was going from Colorado to San Francisco on that night, which went nowhere near Virginia. So it couldn't even have flown overhead and accidentally dropped or had the engine duplicated at that one moment. Because that would have been that would have made more sense that a plane is flying overhead, and in that fraction of a moment, that's when the tangent universe occurs, and as that happens, it duplicates the engine, and the engine falls downwards and crashes through their roof. That a plane was going overhead, but they're like, "Well, hang on, that plane didn't lose an engine. It just like that makes more sense than the fuck all we actually get." In the film. Anyway. Cellador, the uh, um, two most beautiful words in the English language put together uh, that uh, Drew Barrymore mentions, uh, is of course the, for New Century fans, the etymology of the planet of Cellador from The Princess Thieves. A thousand years ago, the Duat, proud and cunning, first made their home on the island of Britannica. In the realm of Kelador. Uh, Celador. No, no. It's Kelador with a hard C. From the Celtic, darling. I've only ever heard Celador. Then everybody you've ever met has been saying it wrong. I think I know how to pronounce Kelador. Well, okay, that's fine. You're the boss. Yes, I am. Shall I continue? Yes. From the top or... Just from in the realm of Celador. Kelador. Yep, sorry. Ke- <clears throat> Carry on, please. On the island of Britannica. In the realm of Celador. Oh, bollocks! It's all right. It was good. Just, just, can you do that again? Just, just without the bollocks. You've got me saying it now. Yes, I accede. That one was my fault. Please continue. And finally, the Richard Kelly cameo at the end. Because he's that little boy. Like, basically, he's not putting himself in the movie, but he identified that kid uh, in the uh, commentary as, if I was anyone in this movie, I was just that kid. Because he was about that age mm. at that point. So, uh, and he was this sort of clueless bystander while all this crazy cosmic shit was going on. So he doesn't think of himself as this Jesus type. He's just a bystander. Which is nice. I honestly think that if I actually sat down and chatted with Richard Kelly, despite the fact that I've ripped into this film and his director's cut, that he's probably a really good guy. And I'd, I'd 
probably have a really fascinating conversation with him. He probably wouldn't want to now that I've been so incredibly fucking mean about his work. But I do have an immense love of this first theatrical cut of Donnie Darko. It is a great film, despite the fact that it doesn't make that much sense. The one thing we haven't really gone into, I'm saving this for last, is the imagery of Frank the Bunny. Because that is a haunting sub-character that will stick with you. That, you know, just seeing that imagery. And because you aren't given something satisfying that demystifies Frank and that um, makes him no longer scary, even when you see... Um, if, if, in fact, it frankly makes it more scary mm. that, you know, he goes from being, what you doing in the middle of the road? Um, to just dead with a hole in his eye. And that, you know, it's like the loop is now closed. And it's it's a frightening brush with death, which is basically what Donnie Darko is. It's a frightening brush with death. And all you can do at that point, if you are a survivor, is to hold your loved ones close. And... The spectre of death in this case is a terrifying bunny, which is unusual and original. Mm. And this is ultimately a fairly original movie. It's This kind of thing has been done before, and it's, it's kind of a warping of the Back to the Future 2 tangent universe side of things. But the way it conveys itself is original enough for people to hate it because it's so odd. Mm. There's hints of uh, It's a Wonderful Life and Harvey in there. A little bit, yeah. Um, oh, Clarence, I want to live! Also, is Frank the Black Rabbit of Death? Yeah. From Watership Down? They kind of le- needed to leave that Watership Down scene in and the chat with his father. Mm-hmm. I could probably splice together, just like putting those bits back in, mm-hmm. an ultimate cut of this. Just a subtle one. Just a couple of little rest- restorations. Mm-hmm. Which are, you know, sad to leave on the cutting room floor. I mean, there's a difference between polishing it up, tightening it up, and actually really just laying it on too thick. And this is, if you're a aspiring director of anything, really, if you're if you're going to make something creative, it's actually probably a good idea to see both versions of this so that you can see what going a little too far is. Not, not, no Um, did you want me to talk about my opinion of Dr. Thurman? My God, yes. Let's finish on that. His fucking rubbish uh, yes. shrink. His, his therapist, yeah. Dr. Thurman. Um, I, this is this is a tricky one because, I mean, you know how much I whinge about bad portrayals of therapy. And generally speaking, it's done for reasons of dramatic emphasis. Mainly because you probably want to be a uh, psychological consultant for movies, right? I wouldn't go that far, not yet. Maybe one day when I know a bit more once about Once you're accredited. It. Once yeah. you've got those uh, once, once certificates on the wall. Once I officially know what I'm doing and, one and the, on the, uh, the uh, imposter syndrome has died back a little <laughs> bit. Um, but I think what frustrated me the most about watching Thurman practice her art is that she's kind of built as a, a realistic therapist. But the things that she does are consistent with the character and and so it feels more real that she's bad. 
it's not that she's dramatically bad. It's not that she's over-egged for the fact that it's a film. I could go, well, whatever, with that. But it's the fact that she seems like a very genuine therapist who does things that I personally would consider to be unethical and poor choices. So the, the first thing that really weirded me out was the fact that when she has her first session with Donnie, she seems exasperated and impatient with him. Mm. Which, what's going on there? <laughs> I mean, I get that she's been seeing him for a while and chances are she's not seeing a great deal of improvement. But as a therapist, if that's how... If, if you're clients aren't making any progress that's kind of on you to a point so being impatient with him is not going to help um she seems very focused on her own success as a therapist rather than the impact that she's actually having on on him um, and particularly on his feelings dear god nobody listens to him in this movie that's the other thing everyone who tries to help him with the possible exception of rose and Eddie, and Eddie's is even only in the director's cut. Um, but nobody listens to him. Even Gretchen, who is there, she's, she's supposed to be his his saving grace. Is everyone saying, don't worry about it? Don't worry about it. When he's... <laughs> I mean, I do give Gretchen a little bit of a, a, a pass on that one, because ultimately she, she accepts his weirdness to begin with, but that scene when he gets really agitated and it's more than she can handle, and she basically says to him... Just calm down. Sit down. It's like, I can't deal with this. But that's okay, because she's a teenager. What she is not is a trained professional. Sorry. It's trained... past midnight now, folks. I know. Um, what she is not is a trained professional who really ought to be able to contend with a patient without looking bored with them. Mm -hmm. Or annoyed with them. Um, again, it is pretty consistent with the character because this is how Thurman behaves throughout the whole thing. So what you're saying is, be a, be bored and annoyed, but do better at hiding it. You can probably be more bored and annoyed really, when they're hypnotised. No, they that, won't notice. Oh, well, I'm, I'll come to the hypnotism in a second. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, there's, there is a, one of the most important things as a therapist is to be honest about how you feel. And ultimately, if you are frustrated, then... You, you can't like totally repress it because ultimately your clients will know that there's something off. Oh. But it's just that she she seems to be trying to hide it. She seems to be trying to conceal it and, and not actually do anything to process it. But the hypnotism thing, it seems pretty apparent that she has no expertise in this whatsoever. She is experimenting the shit out of him. And that is not ethical. He is a teenager. He is a very troubled teenager with a history of uh, destructive behaviour and she hypnotises him in a way that she can't cope with, rapidly escalates, goes down routes that she is then not willing to go with him mm -hmm. and then she wakes him up twice with his hands in down very his compromising pants. situations. Yeah. For God's sake, at least wait for that moment to pass so that when you rouse him, he can maintain some dignity. And she does it twice. He's vigorously ransacking his dignity. And all she needs... To, I'm assuming what she should say is, Johnny, could you not do that here, please? And then have him, like, stow it back away and then clap. Potentially yeah? so. But ultimately, she does it in panic. Yeah. And that is not good. She's like, whoa, I didn't realise the one-eyed monster was coming out. <laughs> 
a degree of training and expectation that something you might not expect may happen if you're going to do this. He does have a hungry, hungry hippo. Yeah. And then I, I do quite like the bit where they talk about um, him accepting that, that he is alone and it does touch on his existential dread and she does seem willing to sort of let that open up and talk about it. I, I like his side of the conversation for that one. I'm not wildly keen on the fact that then she takes it down the route of God. Because she keeps pushing towards if, God. If I remember rightly, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, she brings up God first, not him. Yes, she keeps right. bringing up that's, God. No, no. Everything he says that's vaguely existential, she immediately says, is this about God? So in her version of the eternal, yeah. God is very prominently featured. Donnie does not appear to have decided that that is the case yet. Specifically, like he says... I need to work out his plan. And he's talking about Frank. And she says, his plan? God's plan? But this all just plays in with the whole Christ allegory, which um, is being painted an inch thick. Absolutely. Um, the, the scene where she's talking to Rose and Eddie, I do actually really, really like that scene. So do I. But I that's would have primarily pro- because of Rose. Now, in retrospect, of, of being a, you know, a practicing editor... Um, the, the intercutting it with Donnie stabbing a fourth dimensional construct to freak people out and with like have that before the scene so there's tension that you know that Donnie is not a well person mm. and then focus on Rose's response because if you keep cutting back and forth between Donnie poking at the screen with a, a friggin butcher knife um, then her teary response is muted it's mm. it's like it's distracted from you're you're slaloming back and forth between two very strong powerful feelings Indeed. which are contrasting and that's not a good it's not even like a uh, do, you, do you see what I'm doing here it's just it's intercutting it's mm-hmm. not the same thing yeah but i i at this point i really really felt for rose the yeah, me too. loving somebody who experiences intense mental anguish that you can't do anything about is a bitter, bitter feeling. And I, I feel for her intensely. It, and she, again, she sells it brilliantly. She sells it so well. And that that concern and the desire to help him and the feeling totally out of her depth, it, it's, it's excellent. But fuck Thurman <laughs> at that point. That... That, when we re-watched it as well, it, it hit me. She tells them that he's exhibiting uh, behaviour suggestive of paranoid schizophrenia and she thinks they should increase his medication. The medication she is giving him is sugar pills. She has been giving him placebos the whole time. That made me very angry. She tells him at the very end that basically what she's... I mean, he's from the sounds of things, he's stopped taking the meds anyway. But she tells him that it, they're, not, they're not doing anything. So she is irresponsibly prescribing placebos and then she irresponsibly tells him about it without providing any form <laughs> of support. His slump as he walks out of her office at the end just, for me, underlined the fact that this woman is the least useful person to him in this movie. What she, she gives him literally nothing that is of value to him at all. She just keeps spinning him around. Yeah. And, and effectively, she seems to have been drafted as part of the plan to make him normal. 
This is not a million miles. And I, this clearly not intentioned as such. I think she's supposed to be pitched as a flawed human character. But it's not dissimilar in your take home to a Michael Bay movie. Where, dude, no real man would get therapy. You just suck it up. Hmm. Quit being such a bitch. Maybe so. I think she does come across as a flawed human character. That's one of the reasons it makes me so frustrated. She comes across as a flawed human character who I would not like to see practicing psychotherapy. So we really need to be needed to be made aware of all of these times that you've notified that she's being horribly unprofessional. She needs to exceed those. Mm. She lacks personal insight and she is playing around with what I'm, I'm guessing from the way she behaves is one of her most disturbed clients. Yeah. And I'm assuming that the reason he's seeing her, because she doesn't appear to be a, a specialist in um, counselling young people, that he's seeing her because she's the only therapist in Middlesex. Yeah. I've just realised that I've let my eyes go... Um relaxed and I've been staring at uh, across the room and I'm going, why am I still seeing Donnie Darko's mother? It's because I'm looking at the Battlestar Galactica box set and oh. Laura Roslin is on the far end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Okay, folks. So um, if you uh, really like Mary McCormack in this and you want to see her in more Battlestar Galactica, it's a big thing to get into, but maybe just see the first season, see how you like that. And uh, she's pretty damn fantastic in it. And if you liked Donnie Darko and want to see an intriguing, very flawed uh, Richard Kelly film, I can vouch for Southland Tales. The difference between the director's cut and the theatrical cut of this is pretty much a great example of the work that you've been doing lately with taking films that are weighed down by scenes that don't need to be there and structure that is inconsistent but if you put it in a different order actually it might work a bit better um it this is a really really good film it has such incredibly involving material but the director's cut is really weighed down with explanations that don't need to be there and frames that are just visually a mess a mess yeah explanations that don't explain coveralls that don't quite cover, cover all, all. Mm. and yeah it just made me think that you're it's it's if you want to see a really good really solid example of how editing can really make a film. I mean, there are other examples out there. Everything that Alex has put together has, has made that very clear to me recently. Um, you've got the, the differences between the theatrical cuts and the extended editions of Lord, Lord of the, of the Rings. Rings yeah. um, you've got uh, the Blade Runner. That's yeah, Blade the, Runner's the, another example. Some of the uh, original, like earlier cuts of Blade Runner, they botched that with voiceovers yeah. that shouldn't be there. Harrison Ford, we'll talk about that when we cover Blade Runner soon, mm. deliberately gave a bad voiceover hoping they wouldn't use it because he was like, this material is shit. But they did. But they did anyway. Um, you don't even necessarily need to see the comparison. Um, just Treating the, the audience that... like babies. Baby man, you understand this movie now? 
Um, something like Fury Road, where the the director gave a massive amount of credit to his editor yeah. um, his for wife? the work that she did. Yeah, <laughs> um, in in pulling it together and and making that consistent. You know, the, the work of an editor, I think, is something which is often undersung, and I think editors need more credit for what they do because they can create masterpieces where previously one did not exist. Yeah, editor of Star Wars as well, the original. Episode 4 Star Wars, because people were watching the dailies on that and going, this is just a mess. Mm. And then they stuck it together with John Williams' score, and it worked. Oh, yeah, it's like a sculptor. They take away everything that isn't Donnie Darko. Yeah. And then Richard Kelly came back in and slapped a load of clay back on it. Look, I put some cool neon shades from the 90s on him. No, it was an elephant, Richard. What are you doing? I put a hat on him and then pinned a thesis to the side of his head. Enjoy. It's not a thesis. It's a fucking pamphlet. It's the sort of pamphlet you'd, you'd get off someone in the street who wouldn't stop shouting. And you'd only take it so that they wouldn't maybe steal your gizzard. And one last point for parents worried about profanity in Donnie Darko. It has, according to the Parents Guide on the IMDb, 16 uses of fuck, 9 of shit, 4 of bitch, 2 of dick, also a few uses of goddamn and hell. And a little girl of about 7 or 8 years old asks, What's a fuck ass? I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. And we're going to leave you with Mad World. But before we actually go, take a listen to how Tears for Fears originally sang this song and marvel at what Gary Jules was able to do with it. I'm a big fan of Tears for Fears. Shouts fantastic, Woman in Chains fantastic, Pale Shelter is fantastic, Head Over Heels in this very film is fantastic. And they actually started singing Mad World, much like Gary Jules, after this became extremely popular, and you can understand why. And Everybody Wants to Rule the World is one of my favourite songs of all time. But this is a far superior like Johnny Cash Hurt levels of superior to the original cover version of Mad World. And a massive thank you to our special sponsors at the $15 level this month. That's Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Timothy Green, David Garcia Abril, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. I would undo a tangent universe for all of you. 
and of course to Jesse Ferguson, the sponsor of this episode. We hope we've given you a little more to think about regarding this film, a little more perspective, outline some of its redeeming qualities. We will see you next week for a Guillermo del Toro-produced animated film all about the Day of the Dead, The Book of Life. Thank you.